Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for joining me here on The Tully Show. I've said it before. One of these days, I'm going to start digging in, doing my research for one of these shows, highlighting a bunch of new music released in the distant past. And I'm going to look at what I got to work with, and I'm going to go, eh, it's all right. It's not that great. But honestly, it hasn't really happened yet for over two years and running, and this is not the month where it's going to happen. We've got all kinds of big-time new music releases from March of 1983. I'm about to start talking about, but before I do that, this is your reminder. How deep is your love for new music releases from 1983? I've got 12 lined up for the main show, but afterwards, join me for the after party, the best of the rest of March of 1983, which will feature the arrival of Europe, they of Final Countdown fame, and Bananarama, the end of the road for Thin Lizzy, the 1980s stylings of Van Morrison and Lou Reed, and will we have another forgotten metal band who was so all about the metal that they had the word metal in the title of their album and the lead single from their album? There's only one way to find out. Come and listen. I'll leave the show open and free to the public like I usually do. Listen to this show, then check out the best of the rest of March 1983 new music releases at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, to you live on tape from a bachelor pad podcast bunker in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California boasting a partially obstructed view of the world famous Hollywood sign this is the Tully show I am your home alone no kids no wife fuck yeah host Mike Tully the kids and the wife are in Japan for an extended trip. I'm wilding out. Last night, I stayed up till 12.30. True story. Hello, and thanks as always for joining me as we take a look back at the new music releases from March of 1983. We will begin with the end of the line for Pink Floyd, at least in its classic iteration with both Roger Waters and David Gilmore. Roger Waters would say after the release of the album, the final cut, that Pink Floyd was a spent force, and it certainly sounds as if that was the case. So, they, I mean, how do you follow up one of the great concept albums, Dark Side of the Moon? You make a fantastic double concept album, The Wall. How do you follow up the next one? You just make a movie and then you break up. I think that's pretty much how this is supposed to go. Um, but so they're, they've made The Wall, the album, and now they're making The Wall, the movie. You may have seen it. Bob Geldof with his eyes shaved off. And they're making like they start off thinking that they're going to make incidental soundtrack music to supplement the album music in the wall movie and there's a bunch of songs for as many songs as there was on the wall there's songs that didn't make the cut and they're thinking they can repurpose some of those that in and of itself causes some tension within the band roger um david gilmore the guitar player who wrote far less of their material is saying to roger waters hey if these weren't good enough for the wall why are they good enough now and roger waters is saying to david gilmore 
hey, have you written anything? If you're going to tell me we can't use my songs, what have you got? And David Gilmore's answer was basically, well, no, I haven't written anything, but I, I could if you give me some time. And Roger Waters is like, you had time already. And, you know, they're like an old married couple. It wasn't, they weren't at each other's throats. Here's a fun time capsule of what was going on in the studio while they're making the final cut. Says in the beginning of the sessions, they were on friendly terms, and they had a, a video game arcade console of Donkey Kong brought into the studio, and it's fun to picture David Gilmore and Roger Waters months before they'd be throwing lawsuits at each other, taking turns playing Donkey Kong with one another. But soon enough, things got really tense, and there seems to be some additional weirdness with the producer of the album. He was at times furiously scribbling stuff on a notepad. And when they finally said, what the what the hell are you writing all the time? They forced him to show them. And he had written the phrase, this is a true story, I must not fuck sheep over and over and over. Whether that was something he was strongly tempted to do or this writing that was just his coping mechanism for putting up with being in the same room with Roger Waters and David Gilmore for hours on end, for weeks on end. Uh, I, I didn't get that far in the wiki, to be perfectly honest with you. But they did end up with an album. It did not fare particularly well. It uh, was the lowest selling Pink Floyd album since they had really, as you probably know, Pink Floyd went through several iterations. And if you if you only know them from their, the big stuff that sold a ton of copies and was all over rock radio, you might not even recognize the stuff that was the same band, you know, five, 10 years earlier. Since Pink Floyd really became Pink Floyd as a commercial force, the final cut was their worst selling album since way back in, in uh, 1971, I think. But the album, uh, it, its reputation has improved slightly over the years with Pink Floyd fans, and it did have a single that was written. As I said, a lot of the material was leftover, rejiggered kinds of stuff. Even the concept of the album seems like it went through a couple of different phases while they were making it. Uh, Roger Waters was really moved by the British, so the British had the Falklands War, Margaret Thatcher banging the military drum, and I'll be perfectly honest, for as many times as I've looked it up, I really don't quite understand what the Falklands War was all about, but I know that the liberal liberal UK was very outraged by the Falklands War, so uh, Roger Waters kind of stops on a dime and tries to make it a concept album about that, and this leads to even more tension. And at the end of the day, I don't know if any of us really knows who's right in this decades-long uh, Cold War between David Gilmore and Roger Waters. I don't really know anything about David Gilmore. Roger Waters, I know, recently has had some seemingly problematic political stances and political statements. I'll admit I didn't look into it, but re you may have seen recently more than once he was wearing like Nazi regalia in public. And I'm sure if you ask him about it, he's got some reason why it's actually anti-Nazi and it it probably is. But just think about this and don't think about it in rock star terms. Think about it in like human terms. If you had a friend who started wearing Nazi stuff in public, even if they had a pretty good story for it, that would be weird. You know, I used to know a guy who sometimes would come to parties wearing aqua socks. You know, remember those things that you'd wear that were like the the it was like a wetsuit material, but you wore it on your foot and it had a little holster for each individual toe. Now, that's not illegal. There's nothing wrong with that. 
but it was a warning sign in retrospect. So I feel like I can kind of relate to David Gilmore on this level here. I don't really talk to, to, to that guy that wore the aqua socks to parties very much anymore. Anyway, we're getting off track. Let me play you the single that it was newly written, I believe, for the album, but most definitely sounds like it could have been a holdover from The Wall. It's actually a pretty good Pink Floyd song to my ears, and it's one of the few to um, feature to any profanity, one of the very few Pink Floyd songs specifically to feature the word fuck, which not now John is said to feature like five or six times. I don't know if we're going to get to hear him say fuck on this particular sample I'm about to play, but if you're so inclined, you can go look up the fine album, um, sorry, the whole album, the final cut, featuring this, the last single hurrah from Pink Floyd, Not Now John. March 11th, 1983, Quiet Riot released the album that is pretty widely regarded as the album that kicked off the hair metal movement as the world would come to know it. Obviously, there'd been a lot of hair metal adjacent and hair metal antecedent bands before this. Kiss, Aerosmith, the New York Dolls. At this point, Ozzy Osbourne has already released The Blizzard of Oz, transitioning out of the 70s sound with Black Sabbath into a much more like 80s-friendly thing with Randy Rhodes, who was the guitar player in Quiet Riot before joining Ozzy's band. But I guess what it comes down to is this is where the formula was perfected. Some might say the sound was finally dumbed down enough to be something that a bunch of other bands would be able to copy and replicate and follow to gigantic success in their own right for really about 10 years to follow, whether you love it or hate it. This is where hair metal really properly starts and fittingly. This album, uh, Metal Health from Quiet Riot, is was the first metal album to ever go number one, which is a pretty amazing thing. I'm surprised it hadn't happened before, but they have that claim. And it's interesting because I don't think too many metal fans consider Quiet Riot very good. And they certainly weren't uh, a, a band that enjoyed longstanding success. They're kind of considered, well, they're a one-hit wonder to the mainstream in the metal world. People would know a couple of songs. But they never had an album that any was anywhere near as successful as this. And all their biggest songs were covers. Both their signature hit and a, a single from the follow-up album were actually covers of a British hard rock band called Slade as you may know. But if anything, this might have just been the album that told the accumulated record labels there is a massive appetite among young male record buyers for stuff that sounds like this. Because frankly, it ain't all that good. And this album still sold 10 million copies.
ZZ Top also released an album in March of 83 that would go on to achieve diamond certification. That is in excess of 10 million sales. ZZ Top had already enjoyed some success, were a known and successful commodity in like the blues, rock, boogie scene in Texas, I guess. But this is where they really popped into the mainstream and they were able to do so by subtly but significantly uh, adapting their sound to the changing tides of uh, 1980s style. And also, if you think about it, a fairly unlikely band to be very MTV friendly, but they got an image together. I don't think they always had the crazy long beards, but everybody got the message. Let's all get the exact same beard. Let's get a really, really cool car. Let's get some keychains that have a really cool logo on them. And they made, I can't really think of a ton of acts before that who had like a, not just a signature sound, but a signature image and look for their music videos. Remember, they all kind of felt like they were one long storyline and it was usually a working class dude Seemingly has a very, very big shot with woman who should be out of his league while guys with beards stand next to a car looking unapprovingly. It wasn't much, but it was more than enough in 1983. But the sound had really changed quite a bit. Somewhere in the in the process of making this album, the guitar player singer of ZZ Top, Billy Gibbons, got tipped off to the whole synthesizer thing and the drum machine thing. And you may not have noticed it at the time, but I think there was some ZZ Top tracks that had drum machines on them. And then I think there's certain ways that you can record drums where you can make them sound like drum machines. So when the band went out on the road to support this album, the drummer, Frank Beard, it's always been really funny, right? Two guys have beards and one guy's name is Beard, would be, he really would be playing drums, but he'd have headphones on with uh, what's known as a click track to a metronome to keep him on time because they were also playing some synthesized stuff and some drum machine, uh, some synthetic samples to supplement what he was doing on the real drums. And they weren't really letting to the audience. It looked like three dudes in a conventional rock trio playing music, but there was a little bit more going on than met the eye, but it obviously it was an incredibly successful blend of classic rock with eighties new wave hints and there were a number of massive singles off of the ZZ Top album Eliminator, including the biggest one right here. Another band who made even more prominent use of synthesized drum sounds was the English New Wave act Naked Eyes, who released their debut album Burning Bridges in March of 1983. And uh, much like Quiet Riot, Naked Eyes' signature hit was also uh, a cover song that many people, most people probably did not realize was a cover. I didn't know this for years and years. Quiet Riot did not one but two songs by the British hard rock band Slade. Did you know there's always something there to remind me was actually a cover, a very, very different version 
of a song that had been, I'm not even sure if it was a hit in America. It definitely was a big hit in the UK. I want to say performed by an artist named Sandy Shaw, very much like a swinging 60s, yeah, baby kind of sound to it, written by Hal David and Burt Bacharach. This version, of course, was not swinging in the slightest that had the very deadpanned face of new wave that you you know also think of with tainted love by soft cell which came out right around the same time as we know from last month's show i can't think of a better use of church bells even synth church bells in a pop song ever and i can't can you think of another song where a, a drum a drum part is actually really effectively the musical hook of the song it definitely applies to this song right here from naked eyes well, how can i Elsewhere in the UK new wave scene, I'm under the impression Spandau Ballet on their first album had been more of a stereotypical, straightforward, kind of emotionless, electronic new wave act. The second time around, they decided to do something different and they either embraced or potentially spearheaded what would become known a very very minor scene i'll confess i spent a decent part of the weekend listening to a playlist on spotify made up of only bands who are associated with the sophista pop movement yeah it's it's better than it sounds but obviously (laughs) in terms of movements it doesn't really roll off the tongue never really resonated with a larger public but it basically it's it is what it sounds like it's sophisticated pop Really, a, a lot of these bands, I think, even if they didn't sound like Brian Ferry and his band Roxy Music, they were taking a cue from that. Duran Duran is another band that sort of fits the bill. Just let's, you know, wear some subtle makeup and put it in a lot of hairspray and let's wear a jacket and let's try to be like presentable and try to make something that's slightly soul infused. And I don't know where you stand on this song as a kid. I enjoyed like 95% of the songs that Top 40 Radio uh, fed me. This was one of the songs I genuinely hated as a child. And it's funny because nowadays I actually think it's one of the very, very best 80s singles uh, from the entire decade. Wherever you stand on this song, it came out in March of 1983. This is the sound of my soul. This is the sound. Elsewhere in March of 1983, The Tubes released the album that would uh, yield their biggest hit single. The name The Tubes may not mean a whole lot to you. To me, they're best understood as sort of a poor man's Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship. Starship, right, as you know, 
they started off as a prototypical hippie band, late 60s, hate Ashbury, and then by the mid-80s, they were MTV-friendly, and we built the city on rock and roll. So the Tubes, likewise, to the extent that I really understand the history of the Tubes, literally also started in the late 60s in San Francisco. Success eluded them. They kept evolving, but remained a very, very experimental act throughout the 1970s. At one time, I believe they were known as the Radar Men from Uranus, and then they also were known later on to uh, put together. They were very high concept, lots of lots of props, character names, uh, costumes. They did uh, different uh, outfit changes during themed shows known as Mondo Bondage and the Streakers Ball. It was like that. And they had some really uh, powerful and influential friends. They kept on getting shots. I forget. They worked with a couple of pretty high-profile producers, and it just never quite clicked in a way that could reconcile their avant-garde leanings with a mainstream audience. And very much like Jefferson Airplane, they went through a bunch of lineup changes, and at a certain point, the people who were way more commercial-leaning seized the reins decisively and changed the direction of the band. You you remember this song. You probably didn't even know the artist who recorded it was The Tubes. Given everything that I just told you about the history of this band, isn't it shocking that by 1983 they sounded like this? I've always considered this song like Baywatch rock. Remember the song, the David Hasselhoff song that was the opening credits of Baywatch? It's a very specific subgenre, and boy, oh boy, is it a long, long way from Conjures like the party scene from every early 80s teen movie, The Tubes and She's a Beauty. In January of 1983, German artist Peter Schilling released, I think, his debut album, and it featured a song that was so compelling and so catchy that it was a minor success, at least on like alternative college uh, rock radio stations in the U.S., even in the German language, so much like uh, Nana's 99 Love Balloons. It got re-recorded in, in English, which made it an even bigger success. This song right here, you'll recall, which was inspired by the David Bowie space oddity character, Major Tom. Tears 
Tears for Fears would find massive mainstream success two years later with the release of their album Songs from the Big Chair. Pretty much every song you probably know from Tears for Fears is probably on that album. But they made a, a, a minor splash, at least here in the States, with their first album, which was entitled The Hurting, and which came out in March of 1983. Critics were very divided on whether or not it was a bold new take on new wave or whether uh, particularly the lyrics were just incredibly self-indulgent navel gazing focused on uh, childhood trauma which honestly is you could say all the same things about the songs from the second album that were massive hits as well you know shout is about uh, primal scream therapy etc etc the the first album had a song that was successful in alt rock college rock radio circles here in the u.s but it's probably best known at this point as for the cover version of the song that's featured throughout the movie donnie darko but here it is in its original form tears for fears and mad world You may not know, or you may you may have sort of known at some point and forgotten that one of Michael Bolton's biggest hit songs, I don't know how much you think about Michael Bolton at all, one of his biggest hit songs was not an original, but if you're aware of that, what you might not know is that he did write it. Before Michael Bolton found success as a performer, he was a pretty in-demand uh, songwriter, and he wrote a song that Laura Branigan, the chick who sang Gloria... Uh, performed and it was a pretty successful song for her it would later be a much more successful song for him but to the best of my knowledge this is the first recorded version of the michael bolton classic how am i supposed to live without you Yep. Might well have been your mom's favorite song in March of 1983. I've only got two more to share with you here on the big main show. I know it's kind of a shorter episode this month, but don't forget there is plenty more where this came from over at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. I've got I don't know, 10 more new releases from March of 83 waiting for you there. But in the here and now, let me talk to you about Maryland Rockers Kicks. K-I-X. Was there another? Bands with, uh, hair metal bands with an X in the, at the end of their name became Dime a Dozen. I'm struggling to think of one before them. Helix, I guess. But Helix is an actual word. Kicks is just a, a syllable that's, uh, was there already a breakfast cereal? Yeah, I think, actually, as a matter of fact, I believe their, um, their unofficial slogan at this time was, Kicks is for chicks. 
that tells you a lot about what you need to know about kicks. But I think there's a little bit more to them than meets the eye. They were enormously successful in uh, their like local legends in their native Maryland. And they were around for a long time, kicking around, seemingly had all of the the pieces to be a big, big MTV uh, act. It didn't come together until the tail end of the the hair metal movement. You maybe remember their uh, power ballad, Don't Close Your Eyes. I actually think it's one of the best power ballads of that whole era. But here in 83, they have released their second album. And you remember how I said Quiet Riot really dialed in and tightened the screws on the hair metal formula? Well, these are some of my favorite hair metal-esque albums. The bands who were doing it before the formula was really uh, ironed out. And it became, you know, there's so many formulaic bands that came after it. And I like a lot of those, but I really enjoy bands like this and like very early Motley Crue where there wasn't really a playbook. And so at at moments they sounded like a hair metal band and at, at moments they sounded like something a little bit different, a little bit more unique, a little bit weirder. And that applies to a number of songs off this album. I literally remember getting into them when they had the big hit song and getting that album, uh, Blow My Fuse, yes, was the name of the album that had their big singles on it. But I would, there I was at like Kmart or Caldor with my mom, and because they finally had a hit, the labels were reducing the price of their earlier unsuccessful albums to move some units and cash in. And there I was with like six bucks in my hand getting this album at, remember the nice price sticker of like five ninety nine, And it's a little hit or miss, but honestly, I listened to a couple of songs from this album. I talked about this album recently on another Patreon pod. D- devastatingly, Beavis and Butthead reviewed the the music video of the lead single from this album the title track the album is called cool kids and as beavis uttered in immortal fashion i'm sorry butthead uttered in immortal fashion if these are the cool kids i would hate to see the uncool kids and it was tough but fair it did not age very well but there are good songs on this album and i will go to my grave insisting that this song right here is a hidden gem and still somebody is going to make a movie someday and put this on the soundtrack and contextualize it properly some sort of movie set in the early 80s and people are going to finally get this and this song will get you know like uh, just like um i know this is crazy what i'm about to say but stuck in the middle with you how nobody really remembered that song and then it was on the reservoir dog soundtrack and now you just hear it in mixes of classic stuff as if it was a hit at the time i swear to god in my heart, it is not too late for the same thing to happen to uh, one of the fan favorite songs from Kicks. Check out this one right here. For shame it had to start like that. For shame it had to start like that. Could I had you for all last summer? Found my keys, but I lost your number. For shame. Am I crazy? 
Well, you know what? If I'm wrong, I don't want to be right. I, I love that song. Finally, I don't know where Al Jarreau fits into the whole story here of, of uh, popular music and stuff that was moving units and the stuff that you were into back in 1983. But I am getting pretty old over here. Last night, I got nine uninterrupted hours of sleep, and it was frankly thrilling to me when I woke up and looked at the clock and was like, oh my God, I just slept for nine hours. You know you're old when that sort of thing makes your morning. You kind of know you're old when you finally really get jazz crossover artist Al Jarreau. But friends, I'm kind of old and I kind of get it. This is some smooth shit right here. Excuse me if I sing My heart has found And with that, folks, we have reached the end of the rainbow. I will remind you one more time. There's tons more of this. If you are so inclined to join me, I'd love to see you over at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. But for now, I will bid you adieu. I thank you as always for joining me, and I look forward to seeing you soon.